0: This week in retail news, back-to-school sales are underway as students prepare for an unconventional start of the new school year. Meanwhile, mall property groups are looking to rescue more big-name brands from bankruptcy. And this just in, an investigation led by Reuters revealed that Rite Aid deployed facial recognition systems in 200 of its stores. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, August 3rd, and this is your Retail Rundown. Hi, everyone. Today, we're joined by guests Paula Rosenblum and Carl Boutet. Paula is the managing partner and co-founder at Retail Systems Research. Paula also serves on the Rethink Retail Advisory Council. Carl is the chief retail strategist for Canada's Studio Rx. Paula, Carl, thank you for joining the show today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having us.
0: And you guys have both been on before, so I'm really excited to have you back. And the first topic is about back to school. So it's the first week of August and officially back to school season. Traditionally, as we all know, this time of year brings a siege of apparel and school supplies shoppers. But as educators begin preparing their lesson plans, questions still remain as to whether or not students will be heading back to school or back to their bedrooms to study. Major U.S. cities. Atlanta, and Los Angeles are moving forward with plans to remain digital this school year, while New York, the country's largest district, is opting for a hybrid model with both in-person and digital learning. When we look to Canada, provincial authorities are still working to determine if students will return to classrooms in the fall, most countries in Europe have reopened schools and according to NRF's annual back to school shopping survey 88% of US consumers say the pandemic will affect their back to class shopping in some form. The NRF also projected parents with children in grades K through 12 will spend a record 33.9 billion on back to school goods up from 26.2 Billion in 2019. The study mentioned that 63% of K-12 families expect to buy computers and other electronics this year, which is up from 54% last year. Paula, I'd like to pass this to you first. There's a lot of uncertainty in the air about if people will be going back to school, and this definitely will affect retail. How should retailers be rethinking marketing strategies when it comes to this year's back to school season? The back
2: to school season is really interesting for me because it's not what it used to be when we were kids. By the way, add Miami-Dade to that list of places that is opening digitally and opening two weeks later than it normally would. Hmm. And that brings me to one of the reasons why back to school has changed. I know the NRF is saying, well, it's a great time for apparel and it's going to be different this year. But the truth is school opening schedules are so skewed all around the country. I mean, up in New York where I grew up, they still start after Labor Day. Typically here down in Miami, they start on the give or take 15th of August. And I frankly don't see people buying, with the exception of uniforms, if it's that kind of school. I don't see parents buying new clothes for their kids when it's 100 degrees outside. So I think the apparel side of the business has been shrinking for years personally. And I don't even know where you draw the line that says it starts here and it ends here, given, again, there's a month-long span of back to school. Certainly, electronics will only grow because so many are going to at least be home part of the time. And the parents who may or may not have realized, been able to share a computer or realize that their old computer they gave to their kid was good enough, have realized, no, I really have to spend some money on a good one. So I think that side will be very positive. I think the apparel side is a strategy of hope on a good day. And in this situation, it's don't even, it's not going to happen unless it's. Casual wear.
0: Mm -hmm. Good points, Paula. You said apparel is a strategy of hope on a good day, and electronics looks more positive. Carl, are you seeing the same things where you're based in Canada?
1: Yeah, and not just Canada. I mean, we we track around Europe and even globally some of these consumption patterns. And 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 so basically, I mean, I think the story here is more is not so much a seasonality and you know what the buying opportunities are. It's really the economic repercussions of what this crisis is doing to disposable income and that's going to be the true tale is we're going to see where or just how hard economically we're hit and what that does to disposable income. So I think that's going to be the real story around the world. And as Paula was saying, it's also very much a story of, you know, what are the priorities and electronics are are clearly uh, going to be ahead of apparel. So once we have to focus where the disposable income is going, next is how much disposable income there is to put into the purchasing that goes around things like back to school. The next will be, you know, where the priorities are going to be and technology are clearly going to get the majority of that.
0: Mm-hmm. And w- when we talk about categories of apparel retailers, are you thinking maybe department stores will be hit the hardest? Or what have you seen from? No, your work I, think with retailers? I think it's
2: specialty stores more department stores seem at the moment, for whatever reason, they seem to be in line with the notion of if I've got to go out, I just want to stop one place. And so a department store tends to be an opportunity to buy stuff for the whole family. The way it mm-hmm. seems to me, I'm not going to lie. I haven't been to a store and I, well, I've been to two stores in four months, so uh, I'm not the best example of it, but it based on the results we've seen so far, that's the way it's looking like uh, big box retailers and convenience shopping is going to overtake specialty shopping. The only exception maybe being like
1: athleisure and other casual wear that people mm-hmm. can wear in the house for their Zoom conferences. Maybe I'll take it back into the disposable income conversation and make it more around value, where the retailers are going to be able to discount the most and show the consumer that they're going to get the quote-unquote best deal. I think that's what's going to probably dictate where the shopper's going to go with their money. I don't think it's a department necessarily as much of a department store or not uh, question, I think, is who's going to really go out of their way to show that they're going to make that buck stretch as far as possible.
2: People are caring about how retailers are treating their employees, to be honest with you, the majority of people. I know there are some who want to kill somebody because they've asked them to wear a mask. But in general, what we saw from the backlash against Amazon for a while during the early days of the pandemic, that people really do care how their employees are treated. And Walmart has certainly gotten some great PR for treating its employees well, as has Target. The whole bonus is recognizing that they've become frontline and no longer disposable, but actually rather important. So
1: I think that consumers will remember those things for the long term. I hope so as well. I mean, I have this whole jam around sustainable retail, making it more than just about the environment, but about the people and how we treat the businesses. But I'm concerned again in this sort of as we bifurcate towards these extremes of where the money is. And uh, I think there is a portion that will be able to vote with their dollars. But I think there's another portion. Unfortunately, they're just going to be left with the economic realities where they have to go, where their money is going to get the biggest purchasing power. So,
2: wow. but I
1: I really hope you're right, Apollo. That said, I'm, I'm really, I am really. I think that would be great. And maybe as an industry, we need to put a little more effort into that and getting, making sure that that comes across to a broader uh, consumer base. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, there's no doubt that it's going
1: to be Walmart time, but that's not just because their stuff is the cheapest.
2: It's because you don't have to feel, for want of a better word, dirty for buying from them because they've done some good things. And they've proven to have the leadership that I think the industry has really needed by them setting the tone, saying, for example, that they weren't going to open on Thanksgiving. They kicked off a a trend that is just moving further now. So, um, you know, Target, Best Buy, all, all the big guys have now sort of done that so i think that their leadership has helped a
1: lot how ironic is this to be saying these words you know think 10, 10
2: years I, ago you, where uh, <laughs>
0: you,
1: you
2: couldn't have paid me enough for me to say i would ever say those words
1: <laughs> and, and maybe and you know an additional argument in the environment that we're in right now where shoppers are going to be very focused and where they invest their time not just their money and, and not wanting to be going to too many touch points and in, in physical contact having that one-stop shop will obviously play to walmart's favor as well too so i right think exactly that. there's a lot of reasons why it's walmart and target time
2: But it did seem at least for the first month or so to bleed over into the department stores. Don't forget, they've got a lot of goods they got to get rid of. So their prices will be sharp.
0: I will say there was an interesting article posted July 30th, and it was from Bloomberg reporting that Walmart is laying off hundreds of corporate jobs, which I found interesting. But if you dig a little deeper, it's saying it's because they're not opening as many new stores. And then the merchandising division And then some of the Jet.com, since they're getting rid of that whole segment, um, you know, there are layoffs because of that. So I think it's actually makes sense. But do you guys think that they'll have some negative PR around that because of the economic situation right now?
2: Me, no. I think that giving all the bonuses that they've given and things like that have really helped them. Mm
0: -hmm. I wrote a
2: piece earlier in the week and I talked about COVID accounting. I made up a name. And I based it on purchase accounting. When you work for a company that's doing a bunch of M&A or doing any M&A, what you tend to do is throw all your sins into a one-time charge called purchase accounting. And I think that there are very clearly organizations and entities that are, uh, like a lot of the bankruptcies we've seen so far, probably should have happened anyway. And so I've been calling them COVID accounting. The fact that Walmart is wanting to switch to digital and laid off some personnel because they're not opening that many stores, I don't think they'll get negative press on that because not that many people are shopping these days. Walmart stores aren't the most welcome in a neighborhood because they're so big and they tend to drive out local businesses. Mm. And they've done enough with digital that I think they have a good story to tell. So I don't see them taking heat over that. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I think they've done enough right that they'll get a pass on this.
0: Well, I know Paula mentioned bankruptcies uh, briefly there, and that is part of the topic in this next segment. We're going to cover some malls. But first, I wanted to tell our listeners a little bit more about Vtex. Vtex is the first and only global fully integrated end-to-end commerce solution with native marketplace and OMS capabilities. Vtex helps companies in retail, manufacturing, wholesale, groceries, consumer packaged goods and other verticals to sell more, operate more efficiently, scale seamlessly and deliver remarkable customer experience. Find out more about what Vtex can do for your business at www.vtex.com. We're eight months into 2020. So far, there's been 21 private and public retailers that have filed for bankruptcy. Lucky Brand, Brooks Brothers, and Ann Taylor parent company, Asina Group, are among the legacy retailers that filed for Chapter 11 last month. Meanwhile, there's major mall groups making bids to keep the stores open. So a company known as Spark Group, which is comprised of Simon Property Group and Authentic Brands Group, made a $305 million bid for Brooks Brothers. Spark has also put up a stocking horse bid of $191 million for Lucky Brand. Spark Group is also the owner of Nautica and Aeropostale, and last year the company teamed up with Brookfield Property Partners to acquire Forever 21. Carl, I'll pass this to you first. What do you think of Spark Group's plan to acquire several more struggling brands during this pandemic?
1: Well, I mean, it's, you know, how is it different than any other private equity play? I mean, I think it's they're just using this as a financial tool to really try to find new ways to stretch the same dollar. And it's a really interesting play to see if they're actually going to be able to extract more value than any other private equity player just because of their knowledge quote-unquote of the sector but they really work well together and i think it's just you know extending the inevitable you know there is some brand equity there is some brand value where it becomes and how it manifests will become, you know, uh, we'll see, we'll see.
0: Okay, so Carl, you said it might be just a, you know, a typical private equity play. Paul, what's your take?
2: Uh, I think it's a little bit of two things. One is, yes, a typical private equity play, and those have not been working out quite so well. I think Asena was an equity play as well. And most of them that, as I can recall, have not worked out all that well for the retailer. But there's another piece, which is that there needs to be things in the mall. I mean, if you want to drive consumers to the mall and you want to charge the kind of rent that you want to charge, you need a variety of stores. And malls have been complaining already that everything was the same. I had a friend who was running a small chain of large-sized women's clothes, and she would go to the ICSC, the International Council of Shopping Centers, every year, and they'd beg her to open in their mall because it was different. Because you go to a mall, it could be Dallas, it could be you know, Miami, it could be anywhere, and it's exactly the same stores. Mm-hmm. And so that's not a lot of fun. So again, this is another sort of pre-existing condition. The malls were trying to figure out a way to reinvigorate themselves before this came along, and we're adding entertainment, and we're adding all kinds of ways to become more sticky and more of a destination like they used to be. And now everything's been accelerated. So what they don't want to do is get below what I can call a critical mass so that there just isn't any reason for people to go there. I mean, I still think they're going to have a really tough time because I don't think they can. Having been out and about here a little bit and seen the lack of compliance with the requirements to wear masks and things like that. I don't see a lot of interest in people going to malls, to be honest with you. But they've got to do something. And there's a whole game of cat and mouse going on, like Gap saying they weren't going to pay. Simon Mm -hmm. opening their malls a little too early so that they could start charging rent. And Nordstrom then, for their part, saying, this is what we're going to pay you. We don't care what the lease says. And by the way, if you can draw more traffic will uh, pay you up to 90% of what we were originally going to pay you. So I think that, that malls have a real challenge ahead of them. And buying these chains out is just to keep, it's almost like a placeholder so that people will come, if nothing else, come and try and get a deal or whatever. And of course, if they can extract some cash out of it as a PE would, all the better.
1: What this doesn't solve is really the fact that the business model is broken. Especially for commercial real estate. I mean, the the fact that they're trying to value these assets on long term agreements that they can predict out what the revenues are going to be uh, based on fixed leases uh, is not sustainable. And I actually, at the beginning of the crisis, had a couple of conversations with some of the leaders in the sector, both on the real estate side and even on the development side they all sort of were recognizing this and one more example of this acceleration where they knew that they had to work towards a new model. This is not, you know, acquiring brands. I don't know if it's really fixing anything because they're still basically putting those brands under the same pressure and they're just closer to the books now. And what, you know, came out of this think tank, what I, I created around these conversations and, and how, you know, over about a month and a half of discussions with the group. I mean, the only way forward really for these malls and is not to buy out the brands. They're, that's actually even being tried in other parts of the world where the brands have owned the malls, the malls have owned the brands, and, it, and neither one of these truly, really, truly works. What, what seems to work more is if they can get more variability or variabilize their costs a bit more so that the mall owners gain on the upside and share the downside in their lease agreements and make it more around the transparency of where the business is coming from, or where it's going. The challenge with that model is around what I just said is, is the trust factor and there's still no trust. So anyways, that's a longer conversation, but it th- it speaks to a broken business model.
2: Yeah. There also there's a component of a lease. Typically a mall lease has two parts to it. One is the base lease and then there's percentage rent, which means that it because the mall has done such a good job of drawing traffic to you, they get to get a percentage of your sales over a certain amount. And they ain't getting that this year. <laughs> <All things laughs> no. that, that are, or very little. So I think what they're trying to do is at least salvage their rent. I mean, this pressure. I don't mean to try and paint them as the bad guys. There's pressure across the whole ecosystem, let's face it. We've basically locked down at least half the world. And um, it doesn't come back in five minutes. You know again, where I live, we just had ten thousand new cases and two hundred new deaths today. You know anyone's appetite to go to a mall is you either have to be desperate or dumb, I guess I don't know i mean it's not it's not something that I would see um
1: people doing aggressively. Mm -hmm. And add to that, the fact that what made destination malls the most productive in the last couple of years was adding food and entertainment and hospitality venues. And those are the first things that aren't working in this environment. We have a a major mall redevelopment that happened here in Montreal, where one of our largest pension funds uh, owns this, uh, this sort of premier property and they put $250 million into creating this massive sort of food discovery project that was around timeout market and all these great, you know, bringing the best chefs together. I mean, they were basically betting the farm on this. And now <laughs> look what happens a couple of months later, you know, that who wants to be in a mall eating food right now. So it's, uh, that doesn't speak to the model. I don't think anybody could blame the model for that. But it just, it's a, a category that unfortunately was the most vulnerable to this type of, you know, lockdowns sort or of, you know, scenarios so to, to Paula's point. But there are still some, you know, the really good high-end malls, apparently are doing better, but the key is going to come down to building something beyond the trust that I was mentioning earlier, a business model that factors in the influence that these malls can have on consumption beyond the four walls of the mall and see how they can leverage that and measure it so that the mall owners have some sort of financial incentives as well, too, for the transactions that are instigated in the mall, but that occur outside of it. So that's, again, a much longer conversation, but we're seeing solutions out there that are edging their way towards that.
2: There's also a fair amount of talk about finding a way to do curbside pickup in malls so that you can minimize your amount of
1: time in there and minimize what you're carrying
2: around with you. And yep. these all require changes. I mean, all the things going on now are just stopgap. Something's got to give here. The other thing to mention is that, let's say, in places like where I live in Orlando, 85% of Bell Harbor shops, which has the highest sales per square foot of any mall in the country, comes from tourists. Mm-hmm. And nobody's coming here. <laughs> I mean, there's some people coming here, but they're not the brightest bulbs on the tree. So there's that ripple effect as well. I mean, the guys who built Mall of America were going to build a mall here with an indoor ski slope, which is that one is beyond me. (laughs) um you know but but i don't know where those plans are right now but i probably wouldn't build one today if i were them that's for
1: sure well they're already struggling with their american dream one i think you're referring to american dream two i think is what the way they were calling it the the project in your area and there and there's a lot of question marks around what's going to happen to the first one in new jersey and and right because there's nobody
2: in it is there if i remember correctly
1: well, they had started opening, and it was, again, mostly around hospitality and food, and they'd actually even announced that they were going to increase that to 70% of the footprint was going to be entertainment, hospitality, and food, and only 30% would be retail so there's a lot of question marks uh, around how that's going to unfold and the fact that it doesn't really get is they put up their west edmonton mall and uh, mall of america as collateral for that so mm. so this where all this sort of the, this house of cards can come down you know that's, that's the real concern because what's happening in this crisis is we're focusing on specific elements of it but it's all tied in you know from the mall operator all the way down to the the first goods supplier out in, in third world country that unfortunately you know, this everybody's feeling this pressure so it's all coming full circle and having us revisit where and how value is created.
0: hmm and I like what you both said, Paula and Carl, you both mentioned in terms of Spark Group acquiring these brands that are suffering a bit. It's a private equity play, but they're also, as Paula mentioned, needs to be stores in the mall to attract people. And two points you made about malls and how they're changing right now that I thought were interesting is, Paula, you mentioned they're trying to figure out, how, OK, how can we do curbside at malls? And then, Carl, you said there might be a bigger play with malls in the future helping to incentivize the sales outside of the four walls and figuring out what that model looks like. Both great points. Uh, We're going to hop to the last segment of today, which I always find very interesting. It's around facial recognition and retail. Before our next segment, let's hear some good news. In an effort to keep customers and employees safe during the COVID-19 pandemic, McDonald's is partnering with the Mayo Clinic. The medical center will review the company's environmental health and safety precautions and offer best practices to reduce the spread of the virus. Nestle is forecasting a 2-3% to underlying sales growth this year as more consumers demand high-end pet food and health products. So, I'd like to turn our attention to Rite Aid. They've been in the news last week. A recent investigation by Reuters revealed over the last eight years, this pharmacy chain had installed facial recognition systems at over 200 of their stores in the United States. And the majority of these stores were reportedly situated in metro areas of Los Angeles and New York, with the technology largely housed in lower income communities of color. Kathy Langley, Rite Aid's VP of Asset Protection, said earlier this year that facial recognition resulted in, quote, less violence and organized crime, unquote, in the company's stores. Last week, Rite Aid told Reuters it has quit using the facial recognition software and has since turned off its cameras. Meanwhile, if we look at the broad set of things, retail shrink from theft and fraud rose to $61.7 billion in 2019, and that was according to NRF. That was over 20% year-over-year increase. So I'd like to pass this to Paula. Two years ago, the Loss Prevention Research Council called Facial Recognition a promising new tool worthy of evaluation. What are your views in terms of where facial recognition software has a place in retail?
2: Yeah, I think that we've gone way over the privacy line, to be honest with you. People are suspicious that their cameras are watching them, that their microphones are listening to them, that Alexa is paying attention to every word they say. I mean, IBM was touting a technology for a couple of years, and I think they partnered with SAP. I might have SAP wrong. And basically, they could tell the mood of the customer based on facial recognition software and so would give a cue to the sales associate how to approach them. I just think it's a bridge too far. I really do.
0: Mm -hmm. And you're right. It was IBM, Paula, because they just announced in June of this year that they're no longer funding their R&D right for facial recognition. That's because it's intrusive.
2: It's a bridge too far. It's really mm-hmm. that simple, uh, period, full stop. And, of course, the other irony is at the moment, when pe- people are doing what they're supposed to do, they're all wearing masks and <laughs> who knows anything anyway, right?
0: <laughs> That is true. That is ironic. I didn't think about that until you just said that. There's two reasons why Riot Aid immediately said, okay, no more cameras. <laughs> One is it's
2: a short walk from poor neighborhoods to racial profiling. And that's obviously not a good thing to be having going on right now. And the other is with everybody wearing masks, everybody looks the
1: same. So I actually have quite a bit to say on this, too, because I, I spent a good part of two years really going deep on this and working with the AI researchers or the data science researchers, working with the loss prevention people, the surveillance uh, manufacturers and all that, and trying to understand... I think Paula really brings up some great points about a bridge too far and a lot of these companies were already very tentative to explore this because they just it wasn't very effective technology at that time now it seems like with products like we hear about Clearview AI and these guys that are becoming very very good at facial recognition at the time it wasn't even that great and even with that IBM um, uh, sentiment analysis tool I mean it was very I mean it was What we we would say back, it would be about on sentiment, it was probably 30% accurate. On demographic, it was probably 50 to 60% accurate. It was pretty good on gender, not so good on age. And then when it came to full facial recognition, it was very poor and you need, you really didn't have the the catalogs to properly correlate it to the loss prevention where you'd have a face on file that the camera should be able to recognize as somebody who regularly is stolen from you, for instance, which was really the reason why they wanted it in, in the first place more than anything. And that wasn't really working. I can even see, t- you know, with the face mask, that's an interesting point. You know, does the face mask sort of mute the need for it? In reality, actually, it was part of a panel judging technologies for startups in Israel a couple of months ago. And there was a couple that were tackling that. The Israelis are obviously very security sensitive and they had technologies that were, believe it or not, Paul, actually able to do facial rec, even with uh, masks on, which just by using you know the data points between the eyes and brows and all these well, things. It's so, all
2: the more reason not to use it then. It's
1: too right. Fair. And the big conversation, you brought it up, the big conversation in predictive analytics right now, which is what AI is in this case is around bias and we really don't have a way to figure that out so and that Mm -hmm. i think is where where the rite aid story was going as well Is there's sort of an intrinsic bias unfortunately into all these algorithms that doesn't lead us to a good place and until we figure a way to, to better tackle that That I did some work back in those days with the CCTV commission in London. London is known for having probably one of the most dense security camera installs in the world. So they were trying to figure out ways to find where the public's acceptance of this would be. And people are obviously very accepting of the technology if it's going to limit you know bad behaviors and it's going to help them prevent horrible crimes. I mean, when I was there, they just had the bomb in the tunnel and these sort of things. So they were very sensitive to that, but not at the cost of the privacy. So this is going like three years back already and we're no further along. So it's really a bigger society. This is, goes well beyond retail. I mean, this is a societal question where law enforcement meets ethics and all these things. And, and the technology is going to keep being developed. That's the scary part. And now uh, how responsive, like the Clearview, I think the Clearview AI story is probably the most representative. Look at the police departments that have come out public and say they're going to stop using it because it is really super powerful versus the ones that aren't saying anything, which I guess can insinuate are still using it. So that's a much bigger problem that not just retail, but it, retail was very interested in it. It just they thought they were going to be able to use it to, to reduce that shrink number, especially on the organized loss, uh, which is their biggest problem after in, internal theft. So, you know, where is this all going to land? Who knows? The right Aid thing, I think, is is really a small piece of a much bigger story.
0: Sure. And Carl, you mentioned, you know, and you were in Israel, I believe you said, and you were judging some of the new systems that were coming out. And the big conversation that I saw when researching this topic was that 3D facial recognition systems as compared to the old 2D ones are so much more accurate, even in dim light, and they can measure the depth of your eyeball, the shape of your nose and chin, and compare it real-time nearly to their database of images. So I think things like that, I mean, that's where it gets a little crazy. (laughs) And when we looked at China, You know, I
1: was in China in January as well, which was that's just a different society, Uh, you know, the different societal norms altogether. But the point around the technology, the capacity of the sensors. So when I was deep in this iPhones, they were using facial rectum lock your phone, where, you know, everybody thought that technology was basically ubiquitous, which it wasn't. So using CCTVs or, or security cameras to do that, those were 2D, so they definitely didn't have that integration or that level of precision. Tie that now to the database, because the other big piece is the database, and that's what made Clearview so strong and powerful is the fact that they're scraping images off of social media. So they came out and said, "Listen, we were able to track down this criminal because we were able to find his face in the mirror of somebody doing a selfie in a gym, for instance." So that's we're at a whole other level, and that's not even nothing to do with 2D or 3D sensors. That's just how deep the catalogs can go now and where does this start and stop. So, But combine those two things with compute power that is, you know, every day growing exponentially, databases that are growing exponentially, the question is really more around law enforcement and where are the legalities of all this are going to come in. And they're just not able to keep up right now, quite honestly.
0: Mm -hmm. Good points. And Paul, you said there's no place for this in retail, in your opinion, because it's kind of crossing the line. It's a bit too invasive. But it's interesting how many retailers are using it and people probably are not aware. I saw Burberry last year. It was reported by Forbes that they have technology so that when you walk in the store, it can actually identify you if you're a regular customer and alert the sales associate with your profile and your past purchase history and then suggest things that they could offer you.
2: I mean, it's a risk, you know, I mean, you can do it and people like me can say you shouldn't do it or and then those vendors won't ever spend any money with me or whatever, it's a risk. Mm -hmm. It's not a risk I would take personally. I don't think there's enough incremental dollars in it or shrink
1: reduction in it. I just think it's a risk. And the Burberry case is a bit different because that's an opt-in, right? That is probably right. part of a, part, a it, part of the lo- a loyalty program that you, you know, it has to be made very clear. You know, I'm involved with some research here at McGill University and our retail lab where we have to really go out of our way, even more so in an academic setting, to really make it clear what it is we're measuring and why. And that's the first thing anybody who walks into a space will come across as a big sign saying, we are recording you for academic research pos- uh, to measure certain things for academic research purposes. But we're even worried about that to a certain extent if, if it's enough. But all will say that opting in is a very different, if it's a telling thing versus a loss prevention thing, it's a less slippery slope, but it's, there's still concerns that need to be addressed.
0: Sure, sure. And like you said, it's different by society. We see the EU definitely Looking into highly regulating facial recognition, you know, after they passed GDPR not too long ago, and so unlikely going to spread fast there. But then we have China, one camera for every eight people.
1: Well, yeah, and that's probably underreported. It's even interesting to see. We you know even within the U.S. because right now the leader in this privacy side in, in terms of using biometrics is Illinois. Mm. Illinois has a very comprehensive privacy. Uh, package that's I, I think it's you know it's pretty much adopted now by the state legislation that really will qualifies biometrics because the big piece whenever you're in the privacy debate is this thing called personally identifiable information PII mm-hmm. and there's a lot of debate around that so in some places biometrics isn't considered personally identifiable information and in others it's absolutely which i think it should but it even goes to things like what is your phone's Wi-Fi address you know your right. mac address in, which is in europe now recognizes personally identifiable information so these are all it's again when i said earlier the le- legalities are trying to keep up it's moving so quickly that it's the legal systems the constructs have to catch up
0: certainly i'd like to take a moment to thank you guys paula rosenblum managing partner and co-founder at retail systems research and carl Butay, chief retail strategist for Canada's studio rx thank you both for joining today thanks julia my pleasure You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.